Hi, and welcome to the Law Notes episode of the Legal LGBT Podcast. I'm Eric Lesh, Executive Director of Legal, the LGBT Bar of New York. Today, we are going to be talking about the very latest updates and insights on everything SCOTUS, including the recent Title VII grants, as well as some denials. We'll then discuss a federal appellate ruling in a case seeking to block enforcement of Philadelphia's law, barring child welfare groups from doing business in the city with folks that discriminate against same-sex couples. Next, we'll talk about a discrimination and harassment case filed by a lesbian police officer against New York City. With us, as always, is New York law professor Art Leonard, New York law school professor Art Leonard, chief editor and writer of LGBT Law Notes, the most comprehensive monthly publication covering the latest LGBT legal developments here and abroad. Art, how are you? Okay, okay, and this is our May podcast. This is May. Here we are, into May. Um, though you wouldn't know it from looking outside, it's disgusting. No, it's, it's almost wintry outside. <laughs> I thought it was April showers, not May. Where are the flowers, May? All right, well, going back to April, on April 22nd, the U.S. Supreme Court announced that it will review three cases that could have a massive impact on the rights and lives of LGBT people in the workplace. Specifically, the court will decide whether the ban on employment discrimination under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 can be interpreted to apply to claims of discrimination because of sexual orientation and gender identity. Art, let's uh, talk a little bit about these three CERT grants. We did a, a, you know, kind of late-breaking, you know, news podcast for folks that was a quick update, but now we've had a little time to digest, to think about the impact and what could potentially happen. Let's really dig into this right. now. Well, well, two things that I would want to revise for those people who listen to our special podcast. Uh, I think this is going to be argued rather earlier than I had originally thought because, uh, uh, you know, they, they granted cert on April 22nd. And normally uh, this late in the term when they grant cert, it's going to flip over to the next term, obviously. Uh-huh. Uh, and I thought, well, you know, maybe in the winter sometime. But then I went back on the Supreme Court's website and I looked at how many cert grants there had been prior to April 22nd. Uh There had only been nine. Oh. And so I went back to the calendar of the court's hearing days and I did a little arithmetic and I thought... Unless people ask for extensions of time to file briefs this could and be stuff, November. this could be argued in even late October, early November, and a decision could come out like in January or February. Oh my God. That's possible. We're used to June um, decisions yeah. in LGBT cases in fact, going we, back. In fact, we have a key date in yeah. LGBT oh, history. Oh, right, yeah. June 26th. June 26th was the date of Lawrence. June 26th was the date of Windsor. June 26th was the date of Obergefell. And so, not the Masterpiece not Cake case, Shop, but we earlier. don't really embrace that one as a... No, that's, that's not a major case, <laughs> in, except for the way some courts are treating it. Right. But talking about what happened on April 22nd, yeah. and this was long delayed because the cert petitions were filed a year earlier in the tool sexual orientation cases. They were filed in April right. of 2018. And the uh, Harris Funeral Home case, which is the gender identity case, that cert petition was filed in July. Wow. So the court kept conferencing it and conferencing it over. They kept rolling it over from one conference to the next. I think it was listed nine, at least nine times this year. And uh, 
the sexual orientation cases were originally listed for the long conference in September. Right. And that was put off because uh, Alliance Defending Freedom, which represents the funeral home, said to the court, please wait until briefing is done on our cert petition and then decide them all together. And the court <laughs> obliged. when I was going to say, does the court listen to... Well, well they, you know, at the time, the court only had eight members, and so they were probably figuring the longer we put off this off until we have a full complement, the better. Uh, we have no idea which justices voted for cert. It only yeah. takes four votes to grant cert. Uh, if it, uh, It's certainly not the four liberal <laughs> justices. So it's at least four and possibly all five of the more conservative justices. Uh, so I think people are, are reasonably familiar with the cases. The, uh, the case out of the 11th Circuit, Gerald Lynn Bostock, a gay man who worked for Clayton County, Georgia's juvenile court system mm-hmm. as a child welfare services coordinator. They found out he was gay, I think, because he was engaged in some gay athletic activities or something. Okay. Uh, so they fire him. He files suit in federal district court in Georgia. Uh, dismissed on the grounds that 11th Circuit precedent says that sexual orientation claims are not covered under Title VII. He appeals to the 11th Circuit. He gets a three-judge panel, which is bound by circuit precedent, so they affirm without saying very much. Yep. Uh, I think uh, there was an attempt at, uh, at on bank, which went nowhere, mm-hmm. and he files a cert petition, which then sits for a year. Yep. Uh, the other case... Uh, from here in New York, Zarda versus Altitude Express, Donald Zarda, skydive instructor, uh, who unfortunately during the course of litigation died in a skydiving accident. Yeah. But uh, he was dismissed. Uh, he was uh, doing a, uh, a skydive with a female client, and it was one of those things where the instructor is tethered closely. And in tandem. In tandem. And uh, the woman seemed uncomfortable, and Zarda said, oh, don't worry, I'm totally gay. I'm not going to make moves <laughs> totally on Totally gay. <laughs> I'm not going to make moves on you. Uh, and so she told her boyfriend about it when, uh-huh. when they uh, got back to earth, and the boyfriend complained <laughs> to the owner of the business, and the owner of the business said, what are you doing, Zarda? And he fired him. Okay. And uh, Zarda filed suit under Title VII and the New York State Human Rights Law in Federal District Court in the Eastern District. He appealed the denial of the Title VII claim, but the, the chief judge of the circuit was eager for this question to go on bank. Okay. And so this question went on bank. Mm-hmm. And uh, on bank, overwhelming majority in favor of overruling the circuit precedent. Yep. Uh, and uh, so this case now makes sexual orientation claims are actionable under Title VII for now mm-hmm. in New York and Connecticut and Vermont. So that shows that we've got the 11th Circuit loss, the Second Circuit win. We've got a circuit split. There was right. already kind of and a split And there was already a split because the 7th Circuit a year earlier in the Hively case had also uh, found that uh, sexual orientation claims So are, these are, are the types of cases the Supreme Court right. should be taking up anyway. Right. Uh, so it's not surprising that cert was granted. It could even be a unanimous decision of the justices to grant cert. Uh, because uh, when you have this kind of a circuit split, you really need to resolve it. The federal statute should mean the same thing everywhere. Yep. Uh, in the other case, the Harris Funeral Homes case, uh, this was a case of a funeral director whose uh, legal name was William Anthony Beasley Stevens, had worked for Harris Funeral Homes in the Detroit area, and uh, told... Uh, Thomas Ross, the proprietor, that she was beginning transitioning. Mm-hmm. And Ross said, not at my funeral home. Mm-hmm. Uh, he felt, uh, he said that uh, he had religious objections, he didn't believe in it, uh, he believes God determines gender when people are conceived, and that's immutable. Uh, she files with the EEOC. Uh, by this time, the EEOC had changed its mind and had decided that gender identity claims are actionable under Title VII. 
so the EEOC made the move of filing a lawsuit on her behalf. Mm -hmm. So the plaintiff in this case is the government. Uh, and the EEOC confronted right off the bat uh, the funeral home's motion to dismiss on grounds that Sixth Circuit precedent uh, doesn't allow gender identity claims. Uh, that was incorrect. Sixth Circuit president does allow and has since uh, about 10 years earlier in the case of a firefighter named Jimmy Smith. <laughs> they had accepted uh, such a claim. Uh, but they had accepted the claim not as a gender identity discrimination claim, but as a sex stereotyping sex discrimination claim. And the federal district judge made that distinction. Mm. He said to the extent that the claim here is for gender identity discrimination, I'm dismissing it. To the extent that it's for sex discrimination based on stereotypes, I'm allowing it to proceed to mm. trial. So then we get to answering the complaint and defenses. And the funeral home, uh, which was uh, represented by Alliance Defending Freedom, raises this religious free exercise defense under the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, federal statute that was intended to at least partially overrule the effect of Employment Division versus Smith, uh, which said you can't make a First Amendment free exercise case out of one of these things. The district court found that there was a Title VII violation, but because of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, the funeral home could not be held liable for it. Mm. Uh, so that was the basis on which uh, EEOC appealed to the Sixth Circuit. Sixth Circuit affirmed that there was a Title VII violation, and it went further for the district judge. It said, we now agree with the EEOC that this is gender identity discrimination covered by Title VII, that uh, the sexual stereotyping theory contributes to that analysis. Yeah. But we also agree with the EEOC now that it is really discrimination because of sex. Mm -hmm. Discriminating against someone because they're transitioning from male to female yeah. is obviously taking account of their sex and making a personnel decision. Right. And Title VII says you're not supposed to take account of sex unless it's a bona fide occupational qualification. Mm -hmm. And we don't think it is. And what did they do with and the on, RIFRA? On RIFRA, they said, we don't think that it poses a substantial burden on uh, free exercise of religion to require Mr. Rost to put up with what he didn't want to put up with here. Mm -hmm. uh, and furthermore, they said the uh, uh, federal government has a compelling interest in enforcing Title VII right. uh, to, to ban uh, sex discrimination. Yep. Uh, and so uh, total uh, victory for the EEOC in the Sixth Circuit. And uh, this was just a, a three-judge panel. There was no on-bank petition here. Uh, Alliance Defending Freedom wanted to go straight to the Supreme Court. Mm. Uh, it's interesting that at the time they filed their petition, there were only eight members of the court. Mm. Uh, but I'm sure they were confident that by yeah. time the court resumed, someone appointed by Donald Trump right. would be there yeah. and would probably be open to their uh, position. Uh, so the court has granted cert in all three cases. They're probably going to be argued the same day. They've consolidated the two sexual orientation cases and allotted one hour of argument for it. Okay. Total, wow. uh, which is sort of interesting because now the attorneys are going to have to fight it out who's going to argue on each side mm -hmm. unless they want to each take 15 minutes. Right. Like that. Uh, in terms of the EEOC case, obviously the solicitor general represents the EEOC and therein hangs a tail because at the time the cert petition was filed and at the time the government on behalf of the EEOC had to respond to it, the EEOC lacked a quorum. Uh, or actually, it, it didn't lack a quorum until the end of December. Okay. Until then, it had a quorum, but it was two to one 
Democrat because uh, Trump had uh, proposed a package of candidates that didn't fly in the Senate. So the EEOC was down to its last uh, legs of being able to decide anything, and they were still standing by their position. Mm -hmm. But it was a decision that had been repudiated by the Trump administration. Uh, Jeff Sessions, in October of 2017, issued a guidance memo to the Justice Department stating that for all purposes, sex discrimination laws may not be interpreted to cover sexual orientation and gender identity. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the Solicitor General was in a sort of weird position because the Solicitor General works for the Justice Department. Yeah. And uh, the Solicitor General sort of got a few extensions, for one thing, which is one of the reasons this took so long. I remember that. And then finally filed this thing saying, you know, you shouldn't take this case you should take the sexual orientation cases and argue them first and then decide what to do with this case. Isn't it funny that ADF had more sway with the justices when it came to their grant than the Solicitor General? (laughs) Interesting. Well, you know, they were... And they also... I think they also thought that uh, the uh, court was more likely to rule against sexual orientation being covered than gender identity Mm. because ruling against gender identity would require them really to reopen Price Waterhouse and that's what a lot of us are worried about, because if you read the Price Waterhouse decision, first of all, you note that the portion of the opinion about sex stereotyping by Justice Brennan was only a plurality opinion. Mm-hmm. Uh, two other justices voted with the plurality to give it a majority, but they didn't address this specifically. And the dissenters, uh, were actually a dissent by Justice Kennedy, was critical of uh, the contention that gender stereotyping is, as such, a violation of Title VII. He, he pointed to language in the opinion uh, that he said limited it to saying that it is evidence of the forbidden motivation. But now we have... But courts have built on it. This is, yeah. Yeah, courts have built on it, and uh, some, some might say that courts have gone a bit further than the original opinion would have uh, envisioned or the language of it would have supported. So... It's possible that the court will use the Harris Funeral Home case as a vehicle to rethink some of the sex stereotyping stuff under Price Waterhouse. And this is a court where we have a majority that is not hesitant to overrule precedents. Right. It just happened the other day, didn't it? Yeah, although that was in a constitutional case, and Justice Thomas, uh, writing for the court in that case, uh, five to four court, said, of course... uh, stare decisis is less of a consideration in constitutional cases than in statutory cases. I mean, in statutory cases, uh, if uh, we get it wrong, Congress can come in and amend the statute and repair the damage. But in constitutional cases, we're the only people that can attend to it if we decide that a precedent is wrong or outmoded or whatever. Yeah. I mean, sometimes we like overruling. Yeah. We, we like the Lawrence unfortunate v. Texas thing overruling, is, you know. Well, that's true. Overruling Bowers The unfortunate v. thing is we've got judges right. who come up before the judicial, um, the Judiciary Committee and say, you know, precedent, there's stare decisis, I yes. will follow the laws, don't worry. But there was a very interesting <laughs> recent article noting that several of Trump's nominees to the circuit courts and the district courts have been unwilling to go on the record as saying that Brown, Brown versus Board yeah. of Education was correct. No, that's decided. pretty standard now. They yeah. just will not say whether Brown and, v. Board was correctly decided. And, and I think that goes to the theory of uh, constitutional interpretation that they embrace of originalism. You know, And the originalists argue that at the time the 14th Amendment was adopted after the Civil War, 
The schools, the public schools in the District of Columbia were segregated by race. Congress had no objection to that. After all, Congress ran the District of Columbia in those days. They didn't have self-government. Uh, and clearly, they didn't intend by uh, proposing the 14th Amendment to the states to outlaw racial segregation. If you use original understanding, that may be What correct. on earth good is the Constitution? <laughs> well, <that's laughs> I mean, good, in that view, well, you know, who the that, hell does it protect? Well, their view is that when you have a written Constitution, right. you've frozen the language at a certain point in time. But they drafted should be, general principles, I agree. broad principles. I agree. I'm just trying to... You know, <laughs> You're giving me the we're, devil's we're, advocate. We're, we're trying to explain where these people are coming from, people, people like Gorsuch and Tom. Yeah. And Alito. Uh, maybe not Kavanaugh. We're not sure about Kavanaugh. Yeah. Kavanaugh is a question mark. He sided with the four liberal members of the court in an important antitrust case yesterday. Mm -hmm. It said that people who uh, are being overcharged for apps in the Apple store can bring a, an antitrust case against Apple. Even though Apple said, well, we're just the retailer. Geez, aren't we clutching at straws here? Well, no, he sided with the liberals on I that. Know, and Gorsuch wrote an abiding dissent. So, you know, who knows? But in the meantime, we've got these cases. And uh, the other thing that I'm worried about uh, with the Harris Funeral Home case, uh, although it's technically not before them, you know, they might use this as a vehicle uh, to cut back unemployment division versus Smith. Right which I, I worry about because we're living in an age now where the hot issue in sexual orientation and gender identity discrimination law is religious exemptions. Yeah. And Employment Division versus Smith says you don't enjoy a religious exemption under the First Amendment. You might under a statute, but not under the First Amendment. Yeah. Uh, so uh, who knows where this is going to go. But uh, so these three cases will probably be argued early in the term. But at the same time, uh, we should make the point, because in your introduction, you talked about how important these are for employment discrimination. It's also important to note that courts interpreting other federal statutes that ban sex discrimination normally look to Title VII precedents. Yeah. Under the Fair Housing Act, under the Education Amendments, Title IX. Right. Under the Equal Credit Opportunity Act. Uh, there are various places in the federal code which ban discrimination because of sex, and they all look to Title VII because Title VII has the most developed case law in interpreting what discrimination because of sex means. Wow. So how this is decided will not just affect Title VII. Right. So this we keep framing this as a workplace yeah. discrimination mm -hmm. issue, workplace rights, yes. but truthfully, the implications are broad and sweeping. The implications are much broader. And this is another reason why the Equality Act pending in Congress, which it will probably pass the House this month, is so important. Although I understand that Trump came out against it the Just other day. Just last night, yeah. Uh, I, I assume it was a tweet. That's how he normally announces, I, or do his exact. I speech. think it was just no. I think there or was an, an interview exclusive. On Fox. I don't. I'm not really sure. Fox, I didn't see a tweet. though. Fox has a regular weekly exclusive with the president. Oh I God! Think, because it's the Fox Trump network. Yeah. Uh, all right, but also uh, this past month at the Supreme Court on April 15th. Oh yeah, take us to denials. A week earlier, we had two cert denials. Uh, both were long shot cases that I think few people expected cert to be granted. One involves a death row inmate. Uh, Charles Rines in uh, South Dakota. Rines was convicted of uh, a rather violent murder back in 1993. Yeah. Uh, it came out during the trial that he was gay. Actually, it was emphasized uh, during the sentencing phase. And questions emanating from the jury to the judge 
during deliberations alarmed Ryan's attorneys who thought that they might be focusing on his homosexuality uh, as a reason to give him the death penalty because they really had a choice between death or life without parole. Mm-hmm. Like they sent out questions about, well, what's life going to be like for him, you know, yeah, it, in this all-male environment, et cetera. Right. And it turns out, uh, long after the fact, interviews with jurors uh, revealed that there was some joking around about him being gay and he would probably enjoy it in prison, so they better give him the death penalty. Uh, and in fact, the Supreme Court denied cert in this case once before last spring. But then there was a development. Well, it was pending in the Eighth Circuit. Yeah. And then the Eighth Circuit ruled against him. And so. Well, there's also some new case law from the Supreme Court. There's some new Supreme case Court. law from the Supreme Court that says we will invade the sanctum of the jury, which we have been treating as, you know, impermeable in the past. We, if there is strong evidence that there was race discrimination, racist attitudes expressed in the jury, we may set aside a jury verdict. So this case could have been a vehicle for establishing that homophobia within the jury is also a ground for doing that. But the court, without any comment, uh, turned it down. Uh, The other case uh, is the uh, conversion therapy case from New Jersey. Yeah. uh, Which was promptly challenged in court by Liberty Council, another one of these right-wing litigation groups, on behalf of some practitioners. And the federal district court ruled against the, the plaintiffs. It was affirmed by the Third Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, The Third Circuit took the position that although this is, to the extent we're talking about talk therapy, and some conversion therapy goes well beyond talk, but some of it is is really just talk therapy, uh, the practitioners are saying we have First Amendment free speech rights here. The court said, well, there is some speech involved in talk therapy, obviously, but uh, it is uh, speech in the context of performing a professional service not political speech or artistic speech or the kind of and speech. we regulate that all the time. Right, and we, re- we regulate medical practice. It's really an aspect of medical practice. It incidentally burdens speech, but it doesn't get uh, strict scrutiny. And so they upheld the conversion therapy ban, and the Supreme Court denied cert, okay. as it has in more than one case involving this issue. We moved to last spring, when the Supreme Court was deciding a case Uh, called Family and Life Advocates versus Becerra. Family and Life Advocates is one of these anti-abortion clinics, uh, of which there is quite a few in California, uh, where they they provide services to pregnant women. They don't breathe a word about abortion. They never mention abortion. And the state said they should be telling these women about abortion as an option, or at the very least they should be telling them where they can get abortion services from the state. So the state passed a statute requiring any clinic that's providing services to pregnant women to make them aware of the availability of uh, state abortion services. This was challenged uh, by one of these clinics, and uh, the Ninth Circuit upheld it. And the Supreme Court reversed Mm -hmm. in a decision by Justice Thomas, who said there was only one First Amendment standard for uh, regulating uh, state statutes that compel speech. This is compelling speech. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it's all First Amendment. It, it isn't just because it's in the context of providing medical services or something. That doesn't make it less speech. Right. Professional speech, in other words. Yeah. There, there is no separate professional speech. Yeah. And in the course of writing that part of the opinion, he cited this Third Circuit case disfa- unfavorably. He said, you know, this, this notion of professional speech is, is, not, uh, is not part of our First Amendment jurisprudence. 
And so he notes with this disapproval this case and the Ninth Circuit case upholding the California uh, conversion therapy ban. Uh, and so now Liberty Council gets all excited. They apply to the Third Circuit. They say, well, the basis for your opinion has been repudiated by the Supreme Court. Shouldn't you withdraw your mandate from the district court and ask them to re-decide the original uh, motion filed by the state to dismiss this case, uh, applying the correct First Amendment standard? And mm -hmm. the Third Circuit said, don't bother us. Mm. And they went on bank. In the on bank, they, they refused on bank. Uh, so they filed a cert petition. And they said to the Supreme Court, Look, guys, if you, mean, if you meant what you said in Family and Life Advocates, shouldn't you be requiring the Third Circuit to reconsider this case using the correct standard? Mm -hmm. And the Supreme Court's answer was, cert denied. Good. So, uh, you know, some people may have looked at that and said, okay, the Supreme Court reaffirms the ban on conversion therapy. No, the Supreme Court refuses to reopen a case where it denied cert right. several years ago. Um, so do so we have more any... more cases pending. Do we know what... Um, well, Liberty, Liberty Council is going to do in this specific case? They announced that they're going to file a new lawsuit. Of course they were. You know. um, all right. Because so, now they have a good precedent. Yes, indeed. All right. Well, um, <clears throat> that is a lot of Supreme Court news. Yes. But there is other news uh, across the country. And so we're going to get into that. Let's take a little break. And when we come back, we're going to go to Philadelphia. All right, we're back. After the city of Philadelphia learned that two of its foster care providers would not license same-sex couples to be foster parents, the city stopped referring children to those discriminating agencies. Catholic Social Services and several foster parents, represented by counsel from the Beckett Fund, yet another one of these anti-LGBT groups, sued the city of Philadelphia, asking the court to order the city to renew the agency's contract. So we're going to talk about this case, Art. It was decided on the same day, we were just saying. April 22. April 22, here we are again. Um, all right, so what, what happened here by the Third Circuit? Well, here it's Employment Division versus Smith, you know, that, and I'm concerned that the Beckett Fund is going to try to ride this case to the Supreme Court. Employment Division v. Smith was so controversial that Congress passed the first version of the Religious Freedom Restoration Act by huge bipartisan majorities. Uh, right. and, and among the dissenters, I think Justice Brennan was a dissenter in that case. I mean, there were uh, long-standing liberals who thought that this uh, was taking away an important protection for free exercise of religion in mm -hmm. the U.S. Uh, so we got the, uh, eventually the Religious Freedom Restoration Act in its first version was struck down because the Supreme Court said, no, you can't overrule a constitutional ruling of the Supreme Court with a statute. Mm -hmm. uh, but Congress could pass a statute that uh, effectively amended every federal statute to say that if a federal statute is enforced uh, against somebody in a way that uh, imposes a substantial burden on their free exercise of religion, then the state has a burden of showing a compelling state interest and that this is the least restrictive alternative to achieving it. Uh, and many states pass similar statutes, including Pennsylvania, which is particularly relevant for this case. But Employment Division versus Smith. Uh, so the first argument that was made was that the Catholic Social Services Agency has a First Amendment free exercise right to uh, effectuate their religious doctrine, which is against putting children into the care of same-sex couples. 
but it violates their, and no one questions the sincerity of their religious doctrinal belief. They're Catholics. Catholics hate same-sex marriage. Sure. The but the city thing. isn't forcing them to... But to, the city isn't forcing them to do anything. Right. The city is saying to them, look, we've got a contract with you to provide a non-religious service. Mm-hmm. It is and the not, taxpayers are and footing the, the bill. The taxpayers are footing the bill that members of the public who apply to be screened and certified as foster parents have a right to be treated without regard to any religious tests mm-hmm. because this is being paid for by the city. It's, it's, you know, the city is subcontracting a service that normally would be performed by government. So uh, Catholic Social Services went to court. They asked for a preliminary injunction. They were turned down by the trial judge. And then they turned down by the Third Circuit on the First Amendment. Uh, the Third Circuit says, look, this is a straightforward application of Employment Division versus Smith. Uh, the uh, Catholic Social Services tried to argue that they weren't a public accommodation because they're religiously affiliated. Mm. They said, no, you're performing city contracts. That makes you a public accommodation. Yeah. Uh, it's clearly covered by the city civil rights law. And they, uh, they said, the one that gave a little more trouble, but not a whole lot, was the Pennsylvania Religious Freedom Act, which uh, basically parallels the language of the Federal Religious Freedom Restoration Act. And the court said, uh, citing the Harris Funeral Homes case from the Sixth Circuit, Mm. they said, which ironically was granted cert that day, (laughs) you know, after they'd written this opinion. also circular. Go ahead. They said, you know, the, uh, the Sixth Circuit found that it wasn't a substantial burden on the funeral director's free exercise to require them to continue to employ a transgender transitioning funeral director. Yeah. Uh, They said, we don't see any substantial burden here either. And they said, in construing the Pennsylvania Religious Freedom Act, the the Pennsylvania courts have given a very narrow construction. They've said it has to be burdening something that is a, like a ritual function or something like that. Yeah. You know, it's like saying saying to Jews that uh, you can't do kosher butchering anymore or right, something yeah. like that. They said it has to be something that's required by your religion. They said your religion doesn't require you to certify people as foster parents. You know, that you have voluntarily undertaken to perform this function under a contract with the city. So we don't see that the uh, Pennsylvania Act even applies to you. But even if it did, we think that the city is not targeting religion here. The city is trying to enforce its non-discrimination law, and they have a compelling interest in enforcing that non-discrimination law. Yeah. So we got a Third Circuit decision here. Uh, Liberty Council is not going to take this lying down. Uh, I think they're going to either seek on bank or mm-hmm. seek Supreme Court review. I don't think the Supreme Court likes to get involved with interlocutory appeals from denials of preliminary injunctions, so mm-hmm. they may have to go back and litigate first. Let's go ahead and uh, take a short break, and when we come back, we'll be in our backyard in New York City. Great, so we're back. Lizette Torres, a former New York City police officer, sued the city of New York, claiming that for several years, towards the end of her 18-year tenure in the department, she was victim of sexual orientation discrimination, hostile work environment, and retaliation. In yet another April 22nd ruling, several of her claims were dismissed. Art, tell us about this case. Okay, this is one of these cases that you read and you, uh, you're sort of outraged. You know, I could tell reading your time. I was really upset. Yeah. It's, it's, the problem is when people encounter 
discrimination in the workplace, and she was certainly encountering discrimination in the workplace. It was discrimination at the hands of another police officer. Mm -hmm. And so the issue for her is, do I complain? Do I file a grievance? Do I, you know, take it up with my superiors and everything? This was, uh, she was not out, really, uh, for most of her, her tenure in the department, but she, for whatever reason, took her domestic partner with her to an off-duty police social event in June 2013. They're using the restroom. Another female police officer walks in and sees the two of them together. And when the partner's walking out, uh, this officer, Migdalia Chu, is her name, uh, according to the opinion, Chu saw Velez leave the restroom and said, quote, you should have used the men's bathroom, bitch. And a supervising officer was present and said nothing. And... According to the complaint filed by Torres, after that incident, any time she was in a common area of the precinct with Officer Chu, Chu would make grunting and animal noises directed at Torres. And when Torres notified her supervisors, they offered to move Torres's locker into her office to avoid contact with Chu. In other words, instead of taking action against, against the Chu, officer who was yeah. behaving offensively, they basically said, okay, we'll move your locker. So Sorry you you're uncomfortable. You don't confront her. Uh, but uh, then uh, about a year and a half later, when Torres and Chu were both on duty at the 48th Precinct, quoting the complaint again, when Chu saw a plaintiff, Chu began making grunting and animal noises and called plaintiff a, quote, filthy animal. And another officer was forced to restrain Chu to prevent her from attacking plaintiff. Chu's public comments forced plaintiff to come out as gay to her colleagues. Okay, so she's, you know, what's, what am I going to do? She talked to some sergeants. What am I going to do? They said, whatever you do, don't file a complaint with the Office of Equal Employment Opportunity. They were channeling what is, unfortunately, probably common knowledge in the police department. If you file a complaint, you are the problem. And that's how she went ahead and filed a complaint. She became the problem. Uh, after filing her complaint, she alleges she started experiencing antagonistic treatment by her peers and supervisors. People who file complaints are considered troublemakers. Right. You know, they're stepping out of line. Uh, she was denied participation in activities. She was denied overtime, uh, which she depended on because she was building up her retirement account. Uh, she ended up having to postpone her retirement. She had been averaging 25 hours of overtime per month. All of a sudden, her overtime disappeared. Uh, they offered her mediation to try to solve the problem. Uh, and mediation didn't work. After two fruitless sessions, she said, no, I want a formal hearing. And, you know, you go and you demand a formal hearing. What happens to her? Well, she ended up having to transfer to a different precinct, losing her seniority, losing her overtime, losing her position as an auxiliary police coordinator. And uh, she decided to go ahead and file with the city and the state and the EEOC and end up in federal court. Okay. Okay, so she ends up in federal court. And here's the problem in federal court. Most of the personnel actions that are actionable against the employer were retaliatory actions. I mean, she was suing for hostile environment, sex discrimination, uh, now that the Second Circuit recognizes sexual orientation under Title VII. Uh, but the problem is, the judge said, look, what she's got here basically is a retaliation claim. Mm. I mean, the city moved to dismiss her sex discrimination and sexual orientation discrimination claims, and the judge granted the motion. 
because she said, what happened here, first of all, was not serious enough to make out a hostile environment claim. And, you know, most people reading this stuff would say, oh, come on, you've got to be kidding me. Yeah, I just but, listened to it. But, but the, court, the court said, uh, look, this is two incidents. Well, to me, it's more than two incidents because she said every time she saw a chew in the precinct, she started making these grunting noises. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think it's more than two incidents. So I think the judge was a little off base there. But the judge said, look, you know, the standard for a hostile environment is very, very high. It has to be severe or pervasive. She did it in front of the supervisor, yeah, in front of other employees, yeah. but go well, on. Well, the judge said it didn't meet the standard. Okay. Uh, and furthermore, that uh, the... Uh, the employer, as such, is not responsible for a hostile environment created by coworkers unless the employer fails to take reasonable action. And the employee has to file a complaint mm -hmm. and bring it to the attention of the employer. And here the employer provided mediation, which they said, well, that's, you know, they provided a reasonable, you know, they provided mediation. Well, you know, I read about that. It doesn't sound like mediation did any good here. No. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm pretty steamed about the, the decision to dismiss the uh, hostile environment claim. Yeah. But the judge said the city did not move to dismiss the retaliation claim. Why? Because they're dead on it. They have no defense to it. Mm. Because they don't properly train their supervisors from the perspective of anybody who goes in and does training about discrimination for employers. You train your supervisors not to take any adverse action against someone shortly after they file a complaint of discrimination mm -hmm. yeah. because it's retaliation. Right. And even if the underlying discrimination claim turns out to be dismissed, the retaliation claim won't be. Right. Because the very act of filing a discrimination claim is protected under the statutes. Yeah. So there's a retaliation claim here, and if she wants That's to, I'm good. sure she can negotiate a good settlement with the city on the retaliation claim, unless she wants to appeal this to the Second Circuit. Uh, the Second Circuit is in a gay-friendly mode at the moment, but the recent Trump appointments, who knows? I mean, two new ones just in the past week wow. were confirmed. Okay, so uh, do we know who's representing her? She's being represented by uh, Erica Kagan and Yetta Curlin. Oh, we love them! Of the Curlin group. And also, this, this puzzled me on the opinion it says, and by Kathleen Bell Cullum of Indiana Legal Services, Indianapolis. Oh. So I'm wondering if Taurus retired and moved to Indianapolis. <laughs> <laughs> you know, why would she have Maybe a Maybe she's working for Pete Buttigieg. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, he's not in Indianapolis. No, he's in, he's South, in South Bend. Bend. But who wants to live in South Bend? Who wants to live in South Bend? Oh, sorry. Uh -oh. South Bend is like oh, the no. is paradise on earth, right? <laughs> and look who's the mayor. I don't look who's know. The, look who's the first lady. I'm going to get uh, in trouble. We have, we have friends who live in South Bend, so okay. Um, I'll, I'll tread lightly. But at any rate, uh, the curling group is amazing. They're good friends of ours, and I'm glad to see that they're representing um, this particular plaintiff who was treated pretty abominably. Yeah. Okay, so Art, let's just go right into it. What do you have for an of note segment? Please let it be uplifting. Unfortunately, it's not uplifting. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, you know, one of the problems we have in the lower courts is that while all this stuff is unwinding at the Supreme Court, there are still cases, sexual orientation cases, being brought in the lower courts. And we got a very interesting decision out of the Fifth Circuit in the O'Daniel case which was a sexual orientation discrimination claim brought by a heterosexual woman. Okay. Who claimed she was being discriminated against because of her sexual orientation, <laughs> because her boss is a lesbian. 
What? Her boss, <laughs> the president of the company she worked for is a lesbian. Okay. okay. And she saw this news story about the transgender a woman going to the bathroom at Target. Mm-hmm. It was the local Target in Baton Rouge where she was working. Okay. And she decided to post her indignation on Facebook. And that came to the attention of the company. Okay. And uh, What's the company? Do you know? Uh, yeah. It's uh, Industrial Service Solutions. I'm not quite <laughs> sure. anything. I'm not sure what they do. <laughs> Maybe they're the people that are outside our window while we're yes. doing construction. <laughs> I don't know, but they, well, they're in Baton Rouge, but in Louisiana. But, they, but the president of the company is a lesbian, and she was mortally offended. Her. She felt that this was like uh, offensive yeah. to the entire LGBTQ community, it et cetera. Is. And she had had a good relationship with Miss O'Daniel, and it went totally south, you okay. know, really soured. And yeah. O'Daniel ended up being forced out at some point. So she brings a suit claiming she was discriminated against because she's a heterosexual. Uh, and that, of course, is not true. She was discriminated against because she's a bigot. Right. Uh, she's she's in the Fifth Circuit, and she runs into Edith Jones, one of those conservative oh, judges on the no. Fifth Circuit. Uh, and so Jones said, regardless of the quote evolution quote in other courts' decisions or the party's preferred policy positions, we affirm the magistrate judge's straightforward approach. Other circuits have recognized the Fifth Circuit's unequivocal stance barring Title VII coverage of sexual orientation as a protected class. She says, declining to consider the statute to cover a category of people not squarely identified by Congress in 1964 or even linguistically encompassed today by the applicable language. See Judge Ho's concurrence in the oh, Whitmer case. God. Is thus a matter of precedent, yeah. otherwise known as our rule of orderliness. Because the law in this circuit is clear, we cannot accept O'Daniel's or the Amiki's suggestions that this panel either overrule the precedents or assume arguendo that the trend has upended them. Oh God! So that's what we're running into in the fifth circuit. Well, we know we don't like Edith and the eleventh circuit. Um, but can you tell us who were the Amiki? <laughs> uh, who were the Amiki? <laughs> like, can you imagine Lambda Legal? <laughs> right. Being amicus to a bigoted heterosexual who wants to bring a sexual orientation claim in the fifth circuit. I mean, the principal. It's the, the, the usual Amiki, you know. Oh my God! Okay. Did the Beckett Fund line up to defend her? Uh, I don't think so. Huh. All right, well, probably the Rutherford Institute. You know. um, all right, well, uh, that was we've got a that we was talked a note. we've that that was quite a note. We've talked about a lot on this, um, but there's more to come next month. So we hope you'll continue to tune in. Thank you for listening. We'll be back in June.